to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. For the fall of 2020, my guests all had one thing in common. They all did homeschooling in addition to working and raising their families and doing their creative pursuits. That's not necessarily the... But this is a new year, 2021. So I'm going to integrate some of the recordings I had from before this was a radio show and revisit some of my guests who are not necessarily homeschoolers, but who all do brilliant work in their communities, in their jobs, and in their creative life. Thanks for joining me. This week I'm going to talk about a very short, very manageable, interesting book called Don't Shoot the Dog by Karen Pryor. Karen Pryor is the person who popularized clicker training for dogs. And if you're not familiar with clicker training, it is a very, very effective way to train animals. What's interesting is that the principles also work towards management and they also work for our families. I am a little conflicted about recommending this book, not not in the sense of recommending the book. I think it's a fantastic book. The part where I feel a little conflicted is that there are at least two ways to think about training. One feels very positive to me. The learning to do things to a shared goal or or to a personal goal. Learning. Training. It involves a lot of failure. It involves all the good stuff. all All the stuff that we're driven to do as humans. The part I take a little moment with and am a little more ambivalent about is the idea of training other human beings. <laughs> because my mother made that sort of a, a an unfortunate thing. Like when I, when, I, when I was a child, rather than teaching me things, she would often use the word training as if I was a dog. Which, as you can tell, because I'm still talking about it, I resented. <laughs> but I also have had three children of my own. And there is, to some extent maybe the more positive connotation of training, of teaching people things. In any case, the upshot is the same. Don't Shoot the Dog is about training, teaching animals. That's what I'll talk about first. Clicker training involves a little tool that makes a snappy sound and something that the animal really wants. For most animals, this is food. And when you see, and I'll do it just a dog, although you can do this with so many animals. When you see the very first step of a desired behavior, you click the snappy tool, the clicker, and you give them the thing that motivates them. So for a dog, a little tiny treat that it loves. When you first start training, every single time you see them do the desired behavior, you click and give them a treat. Then, after some amount of time where it seems like they are getting it, you use the clicker and pet them or give them eye contact. Once the dog has an idea of what it's expected to do and is doing it, and you're sort of building that relationship, then you are more intermittent with your treats. 
you're either building to another trick. So now you're trying to, they're solid on this first step of a new trick. Now, when they do a little bit towards the next bit of the trick, you're building on the first one. So you're not necessarily just doing a clicker and a treat for a dog to sit, for example, if you want to have them shake hands or give paw. Now you're more intermittent. And it's once that reward is intermittent, the animal starts searching to see if there's another movement that will get them that treat. The reason why it's such a nice technique is that for thousands, possibly millions of years, Animal relationships with humans have been one that were both carrot and stick and a lot of times very heavy on the stick. This is a humane way of training animals. And it enlists their cooperation far, far more effectively than beating a dog, swatting a dog, spanking a dog, any of those kinds of things. So a dog to teach a dog to go out and relieve itself outdoors. All of that can be done through clicker training. In fact, very well-trained dogs will relieve themselves on command in a given place. Guide dogs often will do that. And any dog can be trained to some approximation of those skills. Karen Pryor's background is as a behaviorist and her graduate work involved training lobsters. Lobsters have virtually no brain cells. They're, they're very, very limited in their capacity to think, but they respond to a flashed light and very, very quick food on a long tweezers to get right to their mouths. She talks in her book about originally working with marine animals and said, you know, at the time, the most popular way, the most accepted way of training an animal is to, for example, a dog is to swat it on the nose with a newspaper. You can train an animal that way, but you now put them in a perpetual state of stress and fear. You cannot train a dolphin that way because they go to the very bottom of the tank and refuse to come up. And as we know, marine animals can be trained to some pretty extraordinary activities. So. The book itself, and especially this idea of enlisting cooperation, trying to find out what motivates someone, in this case an animal, rewarding them with that motivation, and breaking down everything into very small, doable steps. Those are the parts of don't shoot the dog, to take with you into not just any animals you might have in your life, but family members and subordinates at work, maybe even people above you at work, that those are some pretty basic components of how we learn at our best. And I believe that I, I can't find a single activity that humans do that isn't about learning. I think we don't give it quite enough credit how desperately we desire to and cannot help ourselves from learning for good or bad. And that brings us to a little bit of the intriguing dark side that Pryor herself acknowledges. Without 
overstating it. And she's very careful not to overstate it. But I also have to say, I have observed this everywhere since I read it in Don't Shoot the Dog. She says, once you understand intermittent reward, once you understand the mechanism and how that works and how it can establish a cooperative relationship, you can also see how it can be misused. And she points out that it is the trajectory of an abusive relationship. The classic trajectory of an abusive relationship starts out with something called love bombing. And that is the equivalent of reward for every single time someone does something that might go into the right direction. But then it becomes intermittent. And with intermittent comes jumping through hoops and trying to please someone who's in fact interested in controlling. And I think that's where my ambivalence on the concept of training comes in, that in certain kinds of relationships under certain kinds of imbalances, power imbalances, the concept of training can be used against us. What's interesting and one of the really valuable lessons of don't shoot the dog is that once you recognize the pattern, you can, if you find it in your life with people, you can remove yourself. You can recognize what can be mentioned can be managed. And that kind of manipulative behavior or narcissistic behavior or both cannot continue if you know it's being done to you. So to recognize it is incredibly valuable. And so in that respect, the book is, it it touches on the dark side, it acknowledges the dark side, but also by acknowledging it can perhaps free people once they see that someone is doing that to them. But that still leaves the fact that this Training in this way, this positive reinforcement training, it is what it is. We respond because we respond. And like any tool, can be used for good or ill. You can, you can use a hammer to build a house. You can use a hammer to hit someone in the head. It's still just a tool. One of the things that I really enjoy, besides just this idea of looking at the mammals you're working with <laughs> as cooperators rather than objects to be dominated. If you click or train a dog, you are a partner with the dog. You can click or train a cat. They are hilarious and they often are harder to find what their motivation is and their motivations don't necessarily last for a long time. But this woman trained lobsters, so I'm not really going to argue with her. I've also seen trained fish. It's pretty fun to go on YouTube and look up clicker training and various kinds of animals. The fish do it with little flashlight bursts. They just, they, they learn that instead of the clicker. But the two most valuable pieces of it are, what is the motivation here? A lot of times over the course of the fall, when we talked about family meetings, about getting together, if your kids are learning at home, If you're just running a family, what are people's motivations? We can't know those until we ask. And we still don't know those until we listen. And often the person we're asking doesn't actually know what their motivations are. They may need to be 
helped, coached, assisted in some way to try to find their motivations. But we're all motivated by something if we really, really aren't able to find our motivation or to be motivated at all, that is a red flag that we are suffering from something else, something global, perhaps, I mean, what comes to mind automatically is depression. And if depression is involved, well, at that point, now we know that someone needs assistance. That's half the thing. What is the motivation here? And I want to extend this to your kids. What's the motivation there? What's the motivation for your spouse? Like, what is it you hope to get to? What do you hope your relationship gets to? What is the motivation of your employees? Absolutely critical to know what it is, encourage them to think about it, encourage them to articulate it, and make sure that you understand and they understand that the motivation is all motivations are dynamic. They're never going to stay one thing. Motivations for a person who wants to travel are going to be very, very different from the motivations of someone who has a special needs family member and wants to stay here. And those motivations may be completely different than someone who's super motivated by money. Understanding that when we're managing, understanding that when we're building a team and working towards a shared goal means the difference between whether this is going to be something that we're successful at or something that takes a hundred times longer and is a garbage result. And then the second piece of it is breaking down the behavior into tiny increments. And if you read Don't Shoot the Dog, and you can do it in a couple hours, it is a very short book, you get a better understanding for how incredibly effective it is to bring down everything into the tiniest new direction and reward in some way for that new direction. What I find about the steps bit, the tiny little steps, is how incredibly valuable this is into regulating ourselves. I know that I have a problem with this, but I also know that virtually everyone I know has a problem with this, which is wanting to be really good at something all at once or feeling like our skills are super transferable into something new and then feeling like we're disappointing ourselves or not even bothering when it doesn't pan out the way we wanted to. I've talked about this before, not, not giving ourselves a chance to be bad. It's well and good to know that. It's well and good to say, oh, I need to give myself more forgiveness. I need to be less perfectionist, I guess. But knowing what you shouldn't do is not necessarily a practical instruction about what you should do, what you could do, what would work, what would be effective. And I often have a very hard time bringing that around to myself if I just think about what it is I'm trying to do, learning to do what, what learning curves I'm on. But if I take a step away and think about this as how I would want to clicker train a dog, when you are trying to clicker train a dog to sit, you have to notice the first time it goes into that position, clicker immediately and give it a reward. Or you have to tell it and watch its little behind dip just a tiny bit, clicker and reward it. That is, a, that is a tiny little step that's towards ultimately learning how to sit. And once they learn how to sit, they can shake hands or they can sit up and beg. There's a million things you can do, but you can only do it if you bring these skills down to the tiniest little amounts. And in that respect, 
ask yourself, what motivates me to be learning this thing that I'm on the learning curve for? And maybe the most powerful thing you get out of reading, don't shoot the dog, is how to train ourselves. And ultimately, trying to gain cooperation from other people when we don't really even cooperate with ourselves is always going to be a struggle. Learning to cooperate with ourselves aligns us with our purpose and our goals and removes some of that need to be controlling or domineering to others. It opens up a space where others are free to learn and then we are able to encourage them and structure that learning with them. It is such a short book. It is such a funny book. Her stories about animal training and just learning some of these very, very fundamental ways of cooperating with beings that cannot even speak to us is fun and profound. This week, I'll be talking with Linda McInerney, artistic director of Eggtooth Productions, a theater company in Massachusetts that's brought its work as far afield as the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, among other places. We're going to talk about how to make time for yourself when you're busy, how to find something manageable to feed you, how nobody's stopping you but you, theater, the meaning of life, and how important it is to find people to play with. Hi, Linda. Hello, Janet. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks. I'm glad you could, I'm glad you could meet with me. This is great. I'm so happy to do so. So, yeah, so really just sort of unpacking the concept of work and balancing it with life, you know, what you do creatively, what you do with, you know, the 16 hours you have in a day to make it so that it's fulfilling and meaningful. And uh, so why don't you just give me a little thumbnail of what you do for work? And then I I know what you do for play, but I'd love for you to say it. <laughs> Well, I'm one of these people that needs a day job to um, take care of my passion. And my day job is teaching at a middle school called Eaglebrook School in Deerfield, Massachusetts. And I've been there for about 20 years. I really love working there and I love teaching. And my passion is running a theater company called Eggtooth Productions, which started out being a kind of theater production company like you would think. Uh, I was the artistic director and we would put up shows uh, that are written on pieces of paper uh, by famous playwrights dead and alive and uh, uh, would put them forward in the best way we knew how uh, with me directing most of them, not all of them, but most of them and uh, trying to find uh, plays that wrapped around important ideas of the moment uh, so that we would have a jumping off point for discussion. But that all changed a few years ago uh, in 2011 when uh, I lost my space. I was uh, renting a space in a private school nearby and uh, they were renovating the space. And so I needed to leave. And it was the first time being out of that space for many, I think it was maybe like 15 years. It was a long time. And it made me rethink everything, which is something that I love when, you know, you get thrown a sort of a pie in the face. You kind of try licking what hit the side of your face rather than being annoyed about having the pie hit. And uh, the, the delicious flavor of the pie was that <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I began to think, well, why do I feel like I need to make theater in a theater? 
Why don't I look around at the spaces that are all around? And that got me to thinking about sort of guerrilla theater and out-of-the-box theater. And um, I started creating festivals uh, with lots of people included, yourself uh, as one of them. And, uh, and that seemed like a much more interesting way to spend time. And it kind of allowed me to fire on more cylinders than I had been as a director and an artistic director. Mm. And that was exciting for me. And then what happened is I thought the, the festivals became a pretty, I won't say easy, but, you know, a, a pretty comfortable way to create. And I thought, well, how can I shake that up to make it more impactful? And had the idea, and you may have been a part of that conversation to make that happen uh, in, in the room when we all collectively decided with the board of directors that it would be really interesting to create a festival upon a theme. Right. And what we did was to create on the theme of um, climate change. And then that was where it all took off. So now I would say what my passion is. It's quite different. Now my passion is creating opportunities for creators of all kinds, not just theater artists, but installation artists, dancers, visual artists, all kinds of artists to create on a commissioned basis uh, something, again, based on a theme uh, that excites them and allows a participant slash audience member to experience Mm. creativity and art in a way that affects them in a more visceral way so there we go versus say just sitting in a seat or you know passively is that that's what you're that's that's exactly it rather than a butt in a seat it's more like what what will how, how can my experience how can i be astonished experientially in some kind of way yeah, so not that I have anything against a butt in a seat. Right. I, my butt is very happy in a seat. Um, <laughs> and, and actually, I do direct shows from time to time. But this, I find this a much more engaging uh, way of creating. Now, the thing that I was, I sort of noted down when you were talking was using the word passions plural. Mm. That's nice. What? Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Like, what, what, what? I don't think of it as a singular passion. And as a matter of fact, I probably should try and come up with a a word that I can't even think of because I love entering into the unknown in a creative way. So, and the thing that I love about this commissioning of many times they're young artists too, by the way, a lot of times they're in their twenties and thirties and, and hearing their ideas. So what, what I like doing is linking my passionate heart with other passionate hearts. Mm. And so that's kind of where the plurality comes in. I, I like to learn about new ways of approaching things uh, or other people's points of view. And so it gets to be this collective passion in a lot of, in a lot of different ways and hopefully in ways that uh, I can't predict. Mm, mm. And you teach theater when you teach during the year, is that right? I teach during the winter term. So for a little over three months, I teach uh, middle schoolers and the, and the way, the approach that I've been uh, using for that uh, in the last couple of years, I try and change that up quite frequently. But what I've been doing recently is having my classes be entirely student driven. So the kids and we, we create a devised theater piece. And really, all I do is try to rein it, not rein it in, that's not really right, but try and focus it mm. in a way that it can turn into an event. 
and and I just really encourage them to let their wildest imaginations go and their wildest physical imaginations go. So we invent all kinds of things. And the only law is that it has to be performed before the end of the term. And and actually, the, actually, I have more rules than that. My my major rules are: you will be loving, respectful, and kind to your fellow mm. fellow performers, and that you will show up. Essentially, oh, yeah. those are yeah. <laughs> you, will, you will be present in every way and try something new. And if an idea comes up, you won't poo poo it. You'll jump in and give it a shot. So that's yeah. So that's what I've been doing for the last few years, and it's been really fun. So does that come out almost like improv? It does. It can, and you know, it really depends on the group of kids. I usually have about 10 or 12 kids and I ask them to talk to me about what they care about, what they're passionate about. I use that word. And then uh, sometimes I have them do story circle where they tell about something that has happened to them of meaning. We all sit in a circle and each person has three minutes to tell their story. And then the next person who is to your right tells a story that the previous story made them think of. Mm. And a lot of times we get fodder and ideas from that if we're trying to get the kids going on something. Um, yeah, it, and it is, it's improv. But that, that said, though, a lot of times we write a script. A lot of times we create art projects. I mean, it really depends on the, like I say, it's student-driven. Uh-huh. So it really depends on what the kids have in their imagination at that time. Oh, that's very cool. I like it. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a huge amount of fun. <laughs> It's really, it's really it really does. You can only imagine what the what the minds of middle schoolers come up with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, I don't know. I'm remembering when the when my kids did uh, Shakespeare camp and they had the write your own yeah. write your own Shakespeare plays. <laughs> right. So fun. <laughs> so fun. Yeah, and really, my whole point is to allow these kids to keep in contact with their imagination so mm-hmm. that it doesn't get squashed because that's that magic moment where, you know, so much gets lost. Right, right. Middle school. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about when you were talking just briefly was something, a concept that I've heard really recently, which is this sort of stage of creation where you try to move away from by me to through me. And it sounds like yeah. that's something. Yes. I've never heard it spoken in that way, but I think I know what you're talking about. Um, I think of it as a, a being a conduit yeah. for creativity, uh, and that serves a bunch of different purposes. As a matter of fact, when I was working on uh, the captivation of Eunice Williams, one of the panelists had studied and was a Native American from Alaska and had used this beautiful phrase that he got from the Lakota people. He was not Lakota, but he had studied with them. And uh, he said it is to be as a hollow bone so that all of the creativity can flow through you with nothing getting in the way. And I think of that too as a uh, sort of a checking your ego at the door so that the idea that around which the team is creating is the is the point. And one of the ways to actually get to that is to write a mission collectively. Uh, like what is the mission of this project? What what are we what are we seeking to attain? Uh, what's the goal? I mean without saying, you know, without prescribing what it actually is, what 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 is the mission of the piece? And then when people sort of say, hey, I have an idea and I like my idea because I'm me and I want you to listen to me. I mean, those kinds of conversations just sort of get washed away because since you're working toward a mission, your job as a creator is to be the vehicle through which 
the collective ideas can go. And and the thing that's so exciting about that and the reason that people are, are so great about uh, sort of buying into that as an idea is that the collective ideas are always much more exciting and more astonishing than anything any one person could sort of fight for, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's actually, that almost answers what I was going to ask you about, which is, you know, I guess first, how did you deal? How do you deal with your own fear? But then how do you deal with the fears of others in that process? Yeah, that's good. Fear is such a big one. And I have to say that that has been a real focus of my own uh, evolution as a human being for a while. And um, I'm turning 60 this year. And I, I think I can say with honesty that I'm not too afraid of too much anymore, mm. um, having been through all the terror of fear of failure, fear of not fear of not being enough, you know, all of those anxieties. And actually, you'll know this, uh, uh, Janet, because it's the uh, project we met on, is that I was forced into really facing all of those terrors with the captivation of Eunice Williams, huh. which was an opera that uh, I commissioned and received a big grant for from a friend uh, who, who is a trustee on the on a foundation. And he believed in the work and gave me and the company this money and I you know confessed to him day one that I was scared I didn't know about creating an opera I didn't know what I was doing and he was so amazing in that he just had absolute faith Mm. and said you know if you're doing it the way it's been done you're doing it wrong and uh, his other great quote was you say you're bushwhacking Linda we're all bushwhacking If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about balancing work, community, and creativity. So what I did was I spent a lot of energy on making sure I didn't get in the way of screwing up this incredible opportunity of having a grant to make this opera about this beautiful story of little Eunice Williams. And so every time I got scared, I either called Nick or, you know, had a conversation with myself and I worked really hard on not being fearful. And I have to say through that process, because it was so wonderfully terrifying, I really did have to have to get beyond that because there was so much to do, uh, you know, dozens and dozens of decisions that had to be made every minute and uh, so much on the line. And, uh, and I really, I sort of beat it out of myself. And that said, in our business, in the theater business and in the uh, business of performing, it's a terrifying business. So I work almost every day with people who are frightened to death. Right, <laughs> and, right. Uh, it's the deal. I mean, it is, as, as you know, you know, the f- stage fright is a, uh, is a bigger fear than fear of death. I think it, <laughs> stage fright comes in number one and yeah, public speaking yeah. two is death, right? Public speaking. Yeah. That's it. The public speaking thing. So, so I kind of deal with terror on an ongoing basis and I've gotten to be pretty good friends with terror. And I have a lot of ways that I work with uh, my companions in that. And, uh, you know, from saying little things like, you know, right now this, fear feels like a saber-toothed tiger but by the time we're done it's going to be more like a cockapoo at, you know, ankle you know <laughs> so the fear never really goes away but what we try and do is put it in its place and diminish it so that it doesn't because we're actually not being chased by saber-toothed tigers these stories right i forgot to talk right. about yeah <laughs> isn't it isn't it funny what we're being is listened to yeah that's right how, how interesting that that is so terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Scariest thing ever. Isn't that funny? 
it it really is it is and i was noticing actually that when you were talking about your own fear it really came around the money almost like you get what you what you want and then having gotten it it's oh it's like holy shit i got this thing i have i have all this money i have to spend it on this beautiful project and wow i feel like hiding under the coffee table absolutely (laughs) and you know there is a huge thing around money janet especially for women you know that's another real demon we have to wrestle hands on right around the throat you know and yeah and a, a phrase that i've given to myself over time uh is that money is a tool as opposed to an object that has either good nor bad. But thinking makes it so. If we're oh yes, there, of know, course, it, it's just a tool, and you can use it for good. You can use it for ill, or you can hide it, you know, under your mattress if you want to. But it's what you choose to do with it. So to so to sort of take away the power of money and uh and and let it just be the construct and and the sort of piece of paper that it is so that you can go about using it for good and getting out of your own way and quit worrying about if you deserve it or if you're worthy of having it or you know any of those that long list of things we tell ourselves about money yeah it's funny how it gets so wrapped up in almost citizenship yeah you know (laughs) whether you're allowed to be a citizen or not whether you have it or don't have it or want it or don't want it or you know what you do with it when you get it (laughs) exactly exactly Um, yeah that piece about budgeting and budget like the practical piece of Mm -hmm. Well, a it's not the but a practical piece of of production um was that all self-taught did you have to just kind of I, I did have to bushwhack it but you know i what i what i learned though is when you really are stupid at something all you have to do is ask a smart person and <laughs> there are so many smart people and there are so many people who are so much smarter than you are and it's so much more fun <laughs> to be surrounded by them and really if all else fails and you are in a cave and you don't have a beloved uh angel around you that you can ask there's always YouTube. You can find out anything you need to find out. You can find out anything you need to find out. So that's what I, I you know, I, I became very humble very quickly. And in a non-fearful way, I would tell people who knew how to do the thing that I didn't know how to do. I would show them how bravely I knew nothing. And then the generosity of human beings is unbelievable. I mean, that's the real currency. If you want to look at something that changes the world that everyone can benefit from in a very real way. That's, that's the generosity of the human spirit is the real currency. That's how, that's how stuff gets done. That's a beautiful, beautiful thought. Have you ever thought about like teaching on YouTube masterclass? Oh, uh, I don't know if I know enough to teach a masterclass in anything. Uh, I mean, I'd be, I I don't uh, No, I have not thought about that. (laughs) <laughs> keeping it out there i, I know a filmmaker <laughs> but um, but i love talking about these kinds of things i really do because i have spent a lot of time sort of again to use the word bushwhacking bushwhacking my way into a place that i can feel like i can move forward with you know and i think we're all as human beings doing that all the time so maybe not a master class but maybe a companionship you know maybe maybe a Maybe a Skype and companionship with somebody would be fun. Like we're doing yeah. it. Now. We're doing it. Yeah. Well, you're doing it. Have you ever had an like an abject failure that you had to just walk away from? Oh, all the time. And I look forward to falling on my face spectacularly. 
So I'm so glad you brought this up because this is a word, and I use this with my kids all the time. I actually do not believe in the word failure in mm. any way, shape, or form. And, uh, and the reason for that is I think that everything you do is simply teaching you how to get to the next place. Mm. So if you have a spectacular splat, it's so wonderful to look at the splat, see why the splat happened, and as you move forward, you know that that's the thing you don't do. I mean, really, it's all just lessons. I don't even think about failures. I, I mean, I, probably from an outside eye, there would be human beings that say I fail all the time, but I, I, don't, I, I don't think of it that way. I think of uh, living in a, a creative process and trying and doing my best and working hard and trying to learn. So I actually don't use that word. And when my kids bring it up and I say, you will not use that language in my classroom. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. I have used, I have heard people try to use it and turn it so that it is more like, you know, failure means to learn or fail fast, fail up, fail often, those kinds of things. But I think um, it has such a negative connotation to it that I kind of don't even want to use the word until it, and and like so many words that, you know, that's a shadow word right now when it it gets to have more possibilities of meaning, I'll I'll bring it back into my vocabulary. But for now, I just don't even use it. It's all, it's all just the process of, uh, of, of growing and learning and, and just the process. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, re- I remember doing a, a project, stri- trying to do a project, starting to do a project with you where it would be sort of a mini play Cinderella. And I just, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I couldn't get anyone cast. And then the few that I did all got strep throat and I looked around oh, and they came and different. I said, well, that's over. <laughs> well, you know, and you know what, Janet, I would think of that very, very differently. I would think of that as a project that doesn't want to happen now. Yeah. Yeah, that's really what it felt like. Like, I can't force this. No No. one's healthy. Yeah. So so what that means is, for whatever reason, the universe is saying that project is not wanting to happen, maybe never, but also maybe just now. It's just this moment that it doesn't want to happen. So I I think the only thing that I would be able to get out of that would be to try and think of the why. Yeah. So that's not a failure either. That's just like, okay, great. This is excellent information. This Cinderella project doesn't want to happen. Now I'd like to determine if it doesn't want to happen now and what the, what the ground, what, what kind of ground it would want to happen on, or if not at all, why, you know? So, so, and then you can figure it out from there, but the, I remember that project very well. Yeah. That is a project that did not want to happen. Yeah. And it was a strange feeling because I didn't feel like it was a failure. I was a little disappointed that it all happened, yeah, but mostly it felt spacey. I was like, yeah. well, that's yeah. evaporated. Yep. <laughs> yep. And it just means you either move, have to move on to the next thing or readjust it in some kind of way that addresses why it didn't happen in the first place. You know? Yeah. Do you, do you find that there's stuff that simply has to get done a couple times before, you know, like a festival? Mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, the first year, maybe not, or it needs another year, or it needs another Absolutely. place. Yeah, there are lessons in everything. And sometimes, I mean, and it depends on what it is. Sometimes, like I've done a festival in the wrong location. It was the most beautiful festival. I loved every second of it, but it was in the wrong town, and no one came. Now, and I still don't think of that as a failure, even though nobody <laughs> showed up, because it was beautiful. And the people who participated, you know, did an amazing job. It's just that that was not the right place to do it. Um, And another thing that um, I find, too, is that 
um, is I just don't deal with resistance anymore. That was a thing in my younger years that it would be like, oh, if I just could show them how great it is, or I just could do X or Y. And I don't do that. If the project is taking on its own life and wanting to happen, and there's a participant or a creator who just is either getting in the way or doesn't really believe in it or whatever that or or I need something to happen and that person is not really connecting to it, I just let it go immediately. And again, don't think of it as a failure. Just think of it as like excellent information. I now know that this person is not the right person and just love them and say thank you so much and wish them the best and move on from there. So another thing that I think a lot of younger uh, creators get into, and I only say this because it was me not that long ago, is that you you kind of go, oh, I, I, I just push a little harder with this person or a little harder with this piece of the idea. I I now just release when there's resistance and that makes everything much, much easier. And what, what it's an interesting thing there too, is that when you release from that resistance, for some reason, it seems to open up other doors that you didn't notice before. And so you release that attachment and then it's like, Oh, Oh, I can mm. do it with this person or in this way. And then, and, 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 and it, it's, it's a much more effortless, way of working. And, and I find that even the really, really hard things have a quality of effortless, effortlessness to them. If the mission of the project itself is something of meaning that, uh, that again has, has its own mind and wants to happen. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And have you ever had a thing where the you know, lead actor or whatever, just wasn't able to do it. Oh, a million times. Absolutely. Oh, a million times. I can't. What do you do? You know, that, that's another one where I used to have an absolute panic attack and an absolute terror and all of that stuff, thinking that I was never going to be able to make it work. And, you know, even that one, I, uh, I just roll with and just say, okay, I will put it, the word out to the universe. And if this wants to happen, another person will show up. And that, that's how it goes. And if the person comes, great. Uh, I mean, actually, one time it ended up being me, which was really weird and funny. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, there, there's a funny thing that happens when you get past the resist, you know, the, the engaging in resistance. You kind of get to this place of just faith that there is an intelligence greater than your own that will help you if uh, you need help. And and if not, it will guide you to the next thing that wants to happen. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the project is done. Yeah. Sometimes that, uh, like Cinderella, you know, it's just like, well, that one is not <laughs> yep. that, That's okay. Yeah. I never felt bad. I just sort of watched yeah. it pass by going, yeah. well, okay. Apparently in fact, my thought that. was yeah. everyone has strep throat. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> that was really funny. Everybody Everyone got ill at miserable. Exactly yeah. <laughs> it was actually kind of funny in the sense that it, talk about feeling faded. It it felt a little bit like everyone had like gotten the plague. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know so, it's really funny that whole storefront idea has now taken off several years later. Now oh, and now it happens all the time. Now I've done a bunch of these storefront things. That, oh, great. Yeah, they're going great. As a matter of fact, one happened this last winter uh, where there were five windows, I think it was. And I just put the word out with a group email and 
they all made their windows. And oh, that's awesome. Everybody was excited. And it just, yeah, so there is an effortlessness when the project wants to carry itself out. And, well, and yeah, and hilariously, it's a continuum because the oh, reason that idea came up at all was because as we drove away from one of your festivals, one of my daughters said, it's a shame all the storefronts are dark as we drove out of town. Yeah. So it kind of <laughs> dovetails into that very nicely. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I have a version of that myself. It's 30 years ago, I can remember you know, saying to people, it would be so great if theater could happen in Greenfield and just, mm. you know, just in a general way. And people would say things like, oh, you know, we used to have theater back in the day, but we'll never get it back unless Greenfield Tap and Die comes back. We oh, need the right. manufacturing base to come back, which is, it, it was just so funny. Yeah, there used to be money in this town back in, you know, in the early 1900s, it was great. And that's what we need to have happen again. And it was sort of interesting that people were not saying, yes, you know, let's look to art. They were saying, let's recreate the past. I mean, it's almost like a make America great again kind of a thing. It's just like, what what are you even asking for? Well, there's something about that lack of bravery that, that comes up that's really interesting that you're talking about. I remember when um, a couple of my kids went to a performing arts high school and they had a award-winning acapella group of eight kids. Mm-hmm. If you weren't those eight kids, you weren't going to do anything at all, were you? Just it. That's it. <laughs> That's it. And, and I remember walking around saying, where is the... So somebody thought to create this eight-kid acapella group, and it's terrific. But where's the next eight-kid acapella group? Why aren't yeah. there 15 yeah. eight-kid... Why can there only be one? Why does it turn into musical chairs, which is always a party full of crying children and yeah. one gloating yeah. child? And God forbid if the birthday child doesn't make it to the last chair. Why? <laughs> why would you set yourself up for this kind it of misery? Funny, this whole, uh, you know, capitalist competitive thing that is really very clearly not working anymore and has yeah. been working for a very long time. You know, it comes back to that same thing that you and I have talked about is we really have art is so good at this and we have to think of multi-pronged ways at this is to change the story. People are holding on to a story that hasn't been true if it ever was for years. Yeah. 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 Why can't you have 25 acapella groups? And why can't anybody who wants to sing be in one? Right. You know? Right. Yeah. It's it's really interesting. And and instead, I don't know, sort of defeatist sad trombone and walking away to the Charlie Brown theme. <laughs> and, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I but but I also feel like I feel like it's really hard to know what you don't no, you know what I mean? It's really hard to, like, and when you see bravery, and when you see bravery, you then attribute it to someone else being lucky or blessed in ways that you're not, you know what I mean? Like, you don't say, oh, they kind of learned that courage from somewhere. Right. And, or faked it. I mean, there's the other one. Or faked you, it. You don't feel it. Just, I say this to actors all the time and singers all the time. You feel like a coward right now and you're terrified out of your mind. Yep. You do. And now you're going to pretend. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Now you're going to pretend you're the bravest person you've ever met in your life. And yeah. at some point in that pretend, it's going to feel real. And once it starts to feel real, you own it. And then just let that be who you are. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. I'm just trying to think of all the things, all these people that I've known and me, of course, for years, you know, just sort of thinking, oh, well, you know, I don't know how to get it started. And I don't, you know, you're right about the Internet. The Internet helps a lot. Yep. But yeah, just to, I don't know. The, I guess I guess I don't know. We don't have many messages of encouragement, I feel like. Yeah. And you know what? Honestly, I think that might be my biggest job is to be the yeah. encourager in chief. Well, you are. Anything I've worked with you in, that's absolutely true. You've <laughs> taken 99% of the battle is just, you know, feeling like you can do it and that you're worthy of doing it. And then yeah. we'll figure it out from there. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Wonderful things happen. Yeah. Just, just, yeah. it's a bad sneaker ad. Just do it. <laughs> and did you have people, did you have people in your life that really encouraged you, that really mentored you in these things? I did. I had a theater teacher when I was in seventh grade who uh, wrote a part for me. And oh. because his daughter, he, he, in order to get his daughter to go to this little Quaker school, he taught a class. So that uh, he did actually exactly what I did with my kids at Eagle Brook is uh, he traded his skill set for tuition and his uh -huh. skill set was being a, a playwright and a director. And so he did, he created a little play for our seventh grade class and that was it. I was like, I can do this. And, <laughs> and so he was very, very special to me. And I, yeah, he, I think he's the one that his name is Richard Sewell and he uh, lives in Maine. He runs a theater company or did. He's probably retired now called Theater at Monmouth. And he's, he's the one who really got me started on it. Um, and think, just thinking, because he never questioned, this was a thing that I loved about this man. He lived in a kind of um, Shakespearean dream world and the idea of doubt was just, would never enter your mind. And so mm. I observed him very carefully and, and he treated us with absolute respect and honor as creators, as artists. And I just, I'll never forget that. He probably was the, most important teacher I ever had. Oh, that's beautiful. Indeed. <laughs> and um, did you find it hard? This is one thing I did want to just sort of as a as a check in. So when your when your boys were younger, when they were you know really around and small and like demanded a lot of care, and mm. was this all hard to juggle? Did you really have to take stuff on the back I corner? Yeah, I had a major crease to occur um, moving out of New York City and having a baby. So, so if I sound like I'm all cheerful now, there were many years where I was trying to figure out how to, how to be a human being and a creative human being and a good mother. And none of that seemed really possible, but, um, I kind of gave my own self a kick in the ass when Matthew was a tiny baby and decided that I would try to figure out a thing that I could make during nap time. And he was also a shitty napper too, which was, <laughs> sometimes it was like a half an hour, you know, and, or 20 minutes. And so what I decided to do was to do a one woman show and I would just work on it until it was done. And, 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 and but one that was written, uh, that was sort of where my head was at. And so what I chose because of this new place that we had moved to near Amherst, Massachusetts, mm. was The Bell of Amherst, which is one of those William Luce one-woman shows that was about Emily Dickinson. Right. And so I would memorize lines while Matthew was sleeping. And something like four or five months later, I had the show down. And I 
did it at Memorial Hall Museum in their little music room and people really liked it. And I was like, oh, I thought I was just going to do this one thing. But so then I would get a babysitter and I would go to the various schools and various senior centers. And I performed the Bell of Amherst. I don't even remember how many times, like 20 or so. So you just got yourself a space, uh, put some tickets out there and put it on? Yeah, I just, you know, put my ass out there and... And, you know, I didn't realize that it would be something that people would, I I did it for myself to start with, but then it turned out to be a thing that people enjoyed. So I did it again and again and again and again. And that gave me, I think that actually was a really good basis because I, I was in such despair about never being able to create again. And wanting to be a very good mom, like that was the other thing is I I kind of could see that if I could figure out a way to get a ton of time to myself, I would be able to do things. But I didn't want to be that mother. I wanted to be, you know, a real mom, a hands on mom who really raised her children. So it was just like, what's the where's the catch as catch can way to make something. And this really and since I was able to pull it off, uh, it really gave me encouragement to be like, oh. I can do that. Mm. What else could I do? And yeah. just made it seem more possible. So that was my first step. And that, that gave, that sort of led me out of despair, you know, let me see like, Oh, okay. I just, I spent, you know, 27 minutes today working on my art and I got two pages down and I was a good mom to Matthew Patrick McInerney for every other minute of the day, other than those 27 minutes. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And after that, after they needed play dates and things and got a little bit bigger, I decided not to feel guilty about having babysitters and friends. Oh, uh, right. They loved right. it, you know, so that was easier. And then, and as you know, Janet, it's sort of the sequential thing. It's like you start out and you only have three minutes of sleep and then you have 27 <laughs> minutes of a nap. And so you get bit by bit by bit more and more and more. And as you get more and more time to create, you also get wildly efficient because. And so you're able to create in a much more compact piece of time. That's why I think that mothers are some of the greatest creators out there because they've been able to figure out how to make a thing in 27 minutes, Mm. you know, Mm. while cooking dinner. And um, how hard is it for you to like get out of your own way? Like I was thinking about that with the idea of, you know, I'm often very efficient while I'm avoiding doing, you know, sometimes I'm avoiding doing creative things. And sometimes I do other creative things to avoid doing the creative thing that I'm, (laughs) you know, probably afraid of failure on. But (laughs) You know, the key to that one for me has been to just love myself through myself. I know that's going to, if anybody listens to this, I may, you know, get (laughs) squirt gun aimed right at me right now. But I really do believe it is that if we can treat ourselves with the same respect and care and love that we treat every other human being we meet, even on the street, and we will do so well. And so what I do when I do some dorky thing or I, you know, put something off. I talk, I have a conversation with myself, sometimes right out loud and say, you know, Linda, here you are. You have made the decision to clean all the bathrooms instead of, <laughs> That's exactly right. right? Are you, are you with me? 
So make the decision to clean all of your bathrooms instead of writing this hard scene or whatever, you know, whatever it is, whatever this thing is. But then the, the, the thing that helps me is that I say, and you know what, Linda, that's what you need to do right now in order Mm -hmm. to lay fallow and let, let it sift and let yourself figure it out. So aren't you good to go clean your bathrooms rather (laughs) than, Linda, you are such an ass. You can't even sit down yeah. with the paper. You always do this. You always put this, you know, that, that unkind talk that we do to ourselves. Yeah. Just, and by the way, I'm, I'm kind of lying if I say that I do it all the time. <laughs> I'm, pretty, I'm up to about 74.3% where nice. I can be kind to myself and say, this is apparently what you need to do before you do that. And then once you've entered into that conversation, if the two of you or the two slash one of you are getting along, then you kind of get to back and say, you know, well, what do you say, Linda? After, after the bathrooms, do you think you could at least take an hour? <laughs> with the computer or an hour with improvisation or an hour with, you know, listening to the music and figure out the costumes. Could you do that? And then usually we're getting along so well by that point, (laughs) so nice to each other that we just do that. And the bathrooms are clean and. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. We've taken a little moment to, uh, you know, to, to create something too. So I really think that the kindness to self is a really, really big one. Because when I think about how much time I wasted criticizing myself. Right. I mean, that's the time waster. I mean, at least when you're putting it off and cleaning your bathrooms, your bathrooms are sparkling. (laughs) Oh, well, this has really been lovely. It's funny. I was thinking to myself, oh, I should think about key takeaways. And then I just stopped writing down stuff because it was more fun to listen. Then I suppose anyone that wanted a key takeaway could just listen to it again. Hmm. This was fun. A sweet conversation, yeah. Janet. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Linda. I wish you all the very best. Oh, thank you. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com. That's with the number nine. To access show notes, find resources, and join the conversation. Thanks for listening.